Welcome to the Agent of Wealth podcast with Mark Boudis from Boudis Financial. In this podcast, Mark helps guide you towards financial freedom, ensure you never run out of money, and create a balance in life that prioritizes what is most important to you. Join us for this journey as Mark draws from years of expertise and guest experts to solve the multiple wealth building challenges involved in your financial life. Welcome back to the Agent of Wealth. This is your host, Mark Bowdis. On today's show, I brought on a special guest, Kayla Waller. Kayla is our financial planner at Bowdis Financial. Kayla, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, So today we're going to talk about whether now is a good time to add fixed income to your portfolio. Kayla's done a lot of research on fixed income while she was in the financial planning program at Virginia Tech. So I thought it'd be great to bring her on to talk a little bit more about the, the topic. But before we get started, I'm going to give a quick spoiler to that question of whether someone should add fixed income to their portfolio. Like most things in finance, the answer is it depends. Everyone's situation is different in terms of what they're looking for with their portfolio or what they need from their portfolio. In some cases, fixed income is a great fit, and in some cases, it's not. So we'll talk about what to consider when making that decision. And really, as interest rates were declining over the past 15 years, a a lot of people had shunned adding fixed income investments. But now we're kind of seeing that that kind of switch back. Over the past year, we're in this uh, rising rate environment where interest rates are starting to get a little more appealing. And it seems to be like there's more interest in the different types of fixed income. Kayla, maybe you can start us off with what is a fixed income investment and what are the different types of them? Sure. Fixed income is a class of assets that pays out a set level of cash flows to investors. And when the securities reach maturity, investors are repaid the principal, which is the amount they initially invested, as well as any interest they receive. Common types of fixed income products include treasury bonds, municipal bonds, corporate bonds, high yield bonds, and CDs. There's also fixed income mutual funds and ETFs. Government and corporate bonds are the most common types of fixed income products, and companies and governments issue debt securities to raise funds for new projects or ongoing operations. For corporate bonds, in the event of a company's bankruptcy, fixed income investors are often paid before stockholders, which is an important point there. So just like in, in terms of size of the fixed income market, I know like, you, you know, you talk to investors and even if you you put on CNBC, most of the focus is on equities or stocks. How does the, the size of the fixed income, all these things you talked about, treasuries, corporate bonds, high yield bonds, municipal bonds, CDs, how does that compare to the, the, the size that's in the equity market? When I was in college, I originally got interested in the topic because of this conversation. I was talking to a person who was in this fixed income group basis that I was a part of. And she was explaining to me how the fixed income market is double the size of the stock market. And I thought that was super interesting because you just don't see a lot about it. Like you were saying in CNBC or in the news. And I just wanted to take a deeper dive into that, but it's about double the size of the stock market. Yeah. So it's, it's enormous out there and, you know, both on the institutional side and on the, the retail investor side. And you can't really have a conversation about fixed income without talking about interest rates. So maybe you can give us a little bit of a background about just monetary policy, how interest rates change, how does that change or how does the changing interest rates impact some of these fixed income investments? Mm-hmm. I'm going to start by talking about the Federal Reserve, which is essentially the bank of banks and sets the interest rate. But the Federal Reserve is responsible for controlling the money supply 
they focus on two things, price stability and maintaining maximum sustainable employment. To achieve these goals, the Fed will increase the money supply during times when they want to expand employment and income. And when there's inflation, they want to constrict the money supply. So they want to make less money available for banks to lend, which would increase the interest rates. And that's what we're seeing now. I guess we're in an environment now where the Fed is tightening a little bit to kind of try and rein in some of the inflation that's going on. Right. And they have several different ways that they control the money supply. One is just by adjusting the reserve requirements. And this is just, it's a percent of how much deposits that banks need to keep on hand. So they'll just actually like adjust that number. Another way that they control the money supply is by adjusting the discount rate, which is the rate that banks can borrow from the Fed to meet their reserve requirements. And increasing the discount rate would increase these banks' borrowing costs, which discourages banks from borrowing, leading to a decrease in the money supply. And the opposite is true when the Fed lowers the discount rate. And then the most common method that the Fed uses to control the money supply is market operations. And this is the purchase and sale of government securities in the open market. So the Fed buys securities when they want more money in circulation and they sell money when they want to restrict the money supply. And this is exactly what we're, again, what we're seeing now with the Fed tapering and again, trying to tighten things up as, you know, we've been in this easy money environment for the last 10 plus years. Throughout that time, everyone was saying, oh, there's going to be some repercussions of doing this. And we're starting to see some of that now. So now we're seeing the Fed acting and now it's kind of this balancing act that they have to do to to try and manage that or monetary policy that they've enacted over the past 10 years, you know, without causing any further problems to the economy. Yeah. Right now, they're, as you're saying, they were trying to create an environment that discourages consumer borrowing and leads to a decrease in spending as rates rise. Yeah. So, okay. Now let's, let's talk about actually how we can take some of that apply to what's really going on now. So we're seeing that interest rates are rising, right? And I think that's probably one of the main reasons we're actually having this conversation because prior to this, you'd say, oh, here's a corporate bond and the inter- the interest rate that it kicks off is 2% or 3% or something like that. And someone would look at that and said, why would I even bother wanting to to do that? But now, I guess we're seeing that interest rates are starting to get more appealing as they're going up. Is that what we're seeing? Yeah. As interest rates increase, bond prices go down. And as rates decrease, bond prices go up. So, yes. There was even an article in the Wall Street Journal today on the municipal bond side where they said rates going up caused the prices of those municipal bonds to go down to the point now where people are value picking or they're kind of looking at some of these and saying, wow, there's value now in those bond prices. And it makes, you know, answered this question, it may make sense to add those to the portfolio. But that being said, I think investor has to be careful also because they may buy now, but if rates continue to go up, sure, their interest is fixed and it might be decent, but the principle or the value of the bond is going to go down. So it's not a slam dunk and saying, yeah, rates have gone up a little bit since last year, year before. And um, you know, they're at a couple of multi-year highs, but it still is an environment where you have to be careful um, just because we don't know exactly what will happen next with interest rates. Now, people think fixed income, they think safety, security, but I always like to say every investment has some kind of risk associated with it. Even if you keep your money under the mattress, you're taking on purchasing power and inflation risk in that that cash that you have, it won't be able to purchase the same amount of goods and services that it would have in the past. What risk is out there with fixed income? 
The most common and misunderstood risk associated with bonds is credit risk. And this is the possibility that the government or the company that issued the bond will default and won't be able to pay back investors or make interest payments. Other common risks include interest rate risk, as we discussed earlier, when interest rates go up, prices go down, maturity risk. But the main here is the credit risk and interest rate risk. Okay, let's talk about maybe some ways that are some strategies out there where someone can address some of those risks and still be able to take or hedge against some of those risks and still be able to take advantage of some of the fixed income or the qualities of, of fixed income. So I know one thing that's popular is a bond ladder. Now, how, how exactly does a bond ladder work in terms of you know taking some kind of fixed income instrument and utilizing that in their portfolio? A bond ladder is a, is a portfolio of bonds bond ETFs or CDs that mature at different times. Bond ladders are set up to manage the two main things that we were just talking about, cash flows and interest rate risk. If you picture an actual ladder with the rungs and everything, that's essentially the best description of it. Securities and rungs are interchangeable here. So to determine how many you would need, you would just take the amount that you want to invest and then divide that by the number of years that you would like to have the ladder in place. So for example, if you ha wanted to invest $100,000 over 10 years, you would need at least 10 securities in your ladder and you'd have 10 rungs. And these bonds pay, most bonds pay interest twice per year and investors who utilize bond ladders can generate predictable income based on the coupon payments with different maturity months and years. And this can be an important thing for retired individuals because they can depend on these cash flows from and, um, their investments as sources of income. And then staggering the maturity dates can help smooth out the effects of changes in interest rates since investors are not getting locked into one single interest rate. When a bond matures, you would just reinvest that principal into a new long-term bond on the end of the ladder. And by staying disciplined in reinvesting the proceeds from the maturing securities, it makes it easier to deal with the interest rate fluctuations. Yeah, so I think you can make a couple of, of good points. So one, you know, you mentioned retirees and fixed income is really helpful for retirees because it adds that predictability into it. They can now, you know, if they have a monthly amount of expenses or a monthly amount of income that they need, they'll know when they're going to get their fixed income payments and they can schedule them out or they can purchase a portfolio where, um, you know, they can make sure that it's kicking off enough monthly income to pay for, for all their expenses. And the other thing that you, you mentioned about the ladder, and I guess maybe we'll take a quick example. You know, you mentioned like the $100,000 portfolio. So let's say they had 10 rungs on the ladder and the first bond matures in 2025. So they buy a $10,000 bond, matures in 2025, 10,000 bond that matures in 2026, 10,000 that matures 2027, all the way to 10,000 that matures in 2035. Now, 2025 comes, that bond matures now what they do is they buy a bond at 2036 at the end of the ladder. Now, because it's a longer time horizon out, they're probably going to get a higher interest rate on it. And one of the things we didn't mention about bonds is if you hold the bond to maturity, to take that credit risk aside for a second, you'll get the principal back. So even if within that period of time, the principal value of the bond fluctuates, if you do hold it to maturity, you do get the principal back. So there is some sort of control that that you have with bonds and specifically with this, this strategy of the bond bond ladder. But what about inflation? We're going through periods where inflation reading, is reading really high now. What are some options that can hedge against inflation 
and still add fixed income to, to someone's portfolio? There's two inflation index bonds. One of these are known as TIPS and the others are known as Series I savings bonds. They're both tracking CPI as the inflation measure. I'm going to start with I-bonds. They pay a fixed rate of interest as well as another layer of interest that varies with the current inflation rate. So right now, I-bonds that were issued after May 1st of 2022 are paying 9.62%. And individuals can purchase up to $10,000 of I-bonds per calendar year. I-bonds reach their final maturity after 30 years of issuance, but investors can redeem them after 12 months. And if you redeem an I-bond within five years of buying it, you'll lose the last three months of interest. And then TIPS are Treasury Inflation Protection Securities. And these are bonds which val- which whose principal value is adjusted based on changes in inflation. And TIPS are different than I-bonds in that the, the interest rate they're paying doesn't change. It's just the principal that's changing. And individuals and institutions like mutual funds can buy TIPS. They're less restrictive. There's not a $10,000 cap. They're sold in $100 increments, and they have terms of 5, 10, or 30 years. I-bonds or inflation bonds, they're, they're getting a lot of publicity now. We've, we've received a lot of questions on them. I mean, they have some, some negatives that you can only purchase 10000 a year, that you do have to hold them for 12 months. But right now, when you look at the interest that they provide, the lack of risk and the principal um, decreasing, um, there's definitely something to consider. You always have to look at the opportunity cost of it and say, well, if I put 10000 take it from this pot and put it into I-bonds, what am I giving up on the other side? So you do have to you know, look at it from that perspective. But it's definitely something with this inflationary environment. Now, we don't know how long inflation will keep rising. At some point, even last week, I think there was some data out that said, oh, we may have hit a peak. And the reality is we don't know yet. But I don't know if we'll stay at this close to 10% inflation going forward. And I-bonds over the past 10 years, no one even paid any attention to them because inflation was so low that the interest that they paid was very low as well. So I don't know if we go back to a, a time where there is zero inflation and therefore these are not looked at favorably, but for the time being, they're definitely something to consider. I wanted to talk about two other things that come up, you know, when, when people think about fixed income and how does it fit into the overall economy and the markets. A lot of times people will hear about a yield curve and specifically about uh, an inversion of a yield curve and when, how that's an indicator of, of uh, you know, an incoming recession. Can you talk a little about what the yield curve is and why that may indicate that a recession is coming? The yield curve plots interest rates of similar bonds with different maturities. And usually when people are talking about the yield curve, they're referring to the yield curve for U.S. Treasury debt. Um, The curve usually is sloping upward and it inverts when long-term interest rates drop below short-term interest rates because investors expect short-term rates to decline in the future, usually as a result of poor economic performance. Essentially, when the curve inverts, it's a signal that markets are expecting the economy to worsen. And one way to analyze the yield curve is by looking at the spread between two different securities. There's not really a good consensus on which spread is the most reliable recession indicator, but many people look at the 10-year bond versus the two-year bond or the spread between the 10-year bond and a three-month treasury. Over the last couple months, the 10-year, two-year spread did invert, but it's positive now in the 10-year, three-month spread hasn't inverted yet. 
and a yield curve that inverts for an extended time, extended period of time seems to be the more reliable recession signal rather than one that just briefly inverts like we saw in April. Yeah, because that definitely would indicate something strange or weird is going on when you have a long-term yield less than short-term because there's that interest rate risk and that we talked about where, yeah, you get rewarded for the longer term bond that you have in the, in the period of time. So yeah, I mean, it's, we get, we, we definitely hear about it a lot when the yield curve does invert. And like you said, the longer that it stays inverted, you know, it seems to be, if you look at past recessions and past times that the yield curve has inverted it, um, you know, it seems to be maybe previously it's indicated a, a recession or it kind of may just be circumstance and, and it just happened at the same, you know, kind of happened at the same time. Um, but, you know, it's definitely something that we look at on our side. And I think the other thing that people uh, have been asking us or have questions about is, you know, there's all this talk about inflation and interest rates rising. Why is that impacting the stock market? Why has it been a tough start to the year in the stock market when all the talk has been about interest rates and, and inflation where you think, OK, maybe that's going to impact on the fixed income side. But wh- why are we seeing it on the on the equity side as well? Rising interest rates hurts the growth potential of companies and in particular technology companies. These companies are high growth and they're putting all of their cash flow into growing their business and raising interest rates is increasing these companies costs to borrow, which is compressing their profits and ultimately slowing down overall growth. On the other hand, certain sectors like financial stocks do well in periods of rising interest rates because when rates rise, financial companies are able to pass the higher interest rates off to the consumer. Yeah. I think we, you know, being in that easy money environment where, you know, any individual person could get easy access to money, but also even probably more so corporations had easy access to money. So they would borrow money to buy back their stock, to pay dividends, to, you know, initiate new research projects or development projects. And when that spigot gets cut off or gets you know, definitely a lot less coming out of it. What it seems like is they tend to pull back, cut projects, maybe even lay people off. And the thought is, okay, if that's going to happen or if that's where, where we're trending, the market looks at some of these growth companies and says, okay, maybe their out, their projections or their outlook is not as rosy as we thought it was when they were when we were in this easy money environment. All right, so we're just about out of time. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. We covered a lot today on on fixed income investments and some of the things to consider. If you would like to see if fixed income makes sense to add to your portfolio, we'd be happy to talk. And you can schedule a complimentary consultation at bowdisfinancial.com backslash call. Thank you for listening to the Agent of Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Boutis Financial. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial planning and investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investments and financial planning.